0: Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. So, what are you doing with all these missiles? <laughs> well, I'm not allowed to do anything with the missiles. I was just standing around them. I, I mean, you were—you seemed to
1: be doing more with them than, uh, for example,
0: I'm doing with them. Well, I was allowed. I was allowed to be proximate to them, which is, which is not, um, that's not something that happens every day. But, um, but yeah, I was, I was pretty in awe of them. You were referring to, um, having seen some pictures on Instagram of me standing in a, uh, in a submarine with a bunch of Ballistic missiles.
1: Yeah, there are several photos. I think there's two that come to mind immediately. One where you're sort of uh sitting in front of what looks like a large bay of missiles that are pointed toward the sky. I would guess in tubes down mm-hmm. a long hallway. And then there's another one where it looks more like you're with the torpedo.
0: I was with the torpedo in that in that later picture. Yeah, I like the,
1: those. Uh, those are both very cool pictures. <laughs>
0: You mean they're? They are. Um, you know, there. It's an awesome feeling. I mean, Where were you? What,
1: what were you? One looks like it's on a sub, I'm guessing, and then the other one, also
0: on a sub. Also on a sub. Yeah, I went on a tour of a Banger Navy Base, which is a um, one of two nuclear submarine bases one of two i'm sorry ballistic missile submarine bases in the united states the other one being in georgia and uh about half of our fleet of of um ballistic missile submarines is located here in washington and they go out and they uh, they drive around the pacific ocean it's a very secure facility because it's one of the well, it's a, it's an enormously concentrated collection of uh, nuclear warheads yeah. there. So something I didn't know was that since the end of the Cold War, now more than 70% of our arsenal of warheads of this type live on submarines or are associated with submarines. It's no longer a world in which bombers and land-based icbms are the primary way that we imagine delivering these bombs to uh to an enemy they all are or the majority of them now are in these subs and just kind of tooling around the ocean
1: i mean i guess that makes sense because it means that they're mobile and that we can deploy them anywhere and move them close to whatever we want and but do they have the whole thing like in war games with, you know, turn your key and and all of that stuff, the same same processes that are going on on, on the sub? How do they prevent a rogue, a rogue sub from just doing something, you know, doing something a little crazy? Are there? Any kind of procedures in place that keep that down? Why is a guy like you on there? Well, you know, I mean, like I have a lot of questions
0: about it. They don't have the same turn your key system that the Air Force has. Um, in a submarine – The captain uh ultimately is the is the decider upon her. But there's something called a fire control officer that also has to be part of the process because the captain is not the the, um there's a room sort of far back in the sub where the codes would come in. They would open their little safes, they would pull out their um confirmation codes it would all line up the fire control officer would then determine that it was legitimate and then he would call the captain and say you know this is all real and it it it, it, it involves the decision make. it de- involves a decision making chain right that's a little bit longer than one person just saying like fire the missiles right um, you could make an argument that no chain is long enough. Yeah, uh, to ensure that there's not ever a problem, particularly when you involve computers at any stage in the process. Right. But um, but it is a system. You know, there is a there is a, a system that's been in place for a long time that has so far has prevented any kind of accidental launch of a missile. Right. As far as we know. I uh, was there – I was able to tour the facility because I made friends with the admiral who's in charge of the base when I was – when I met him this summer at Seafair in my capacity as King Neptune. And we hit it off. You know, one of the funny things about being in my late 40s, uh, and I think we've talked about it before, is that I'm the same age as a uh, one-star admiral or a a full-bird colonel. And so – there's an immediate feeling of cultural um, similarity between me and, and somebody like that. I mean, we all grew up watching Scooby-Doo and so we hit where we could have been in college together and they just made the decision at the end of college to join the army or Navy. And I didn't, but I have friends that joined the Navy. Like I'm it's, um, it's an easy rapport. Right. And these, uh, these people have lived in a military context their whole adult lives, but it doesn't mean that they are just automatons. They have, they have their own, um, you know, they're, they're people. They don't think of themselves exclusively as service people. And they like meeting somebody from the outside world. You know, they, they like having friends that are not all subordinates. Or um, I think you're not allowed to fraternize with your subordinates. So they're the only – if you're a one-star admiral or a two-star admiral, the only people you can be friends with are other admirals. Right, and right, right. That's got to be a pretty weird – you can't go out drinking with your lieutenant commanders. Right, no way. Um, and likewise, a three-star admiral can't really go out drinking with you. Or I mean I think it's a lot easier probably at that level to feel like – the um, anti-fraternization isn't really a problem. You know, one-star one, one admiral is not going to get too familiar with a three-star admiral. But it's a limited social circle. And I think I – fe- I feel like part of the fun of seafare C- for me was realizing like, oh, these are – you know, these these uh, people have a, a, a social need to stand around and just shoot the shit with people. Mm-hmm. And – if you're in if you're in a hierarchical system all the time, you're never really at your leave to just be candid. And I felt like they I felt like the admirals I met all were very quickly very candid with me. So anyway, the Admiral John Tamman invited me out to tour his base. And um, of course I jumped at the chance. Of course, yeah. But I wasn't quite prepared to reckon with that kind of proximity to nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Boy, I, it's breaking me myself of the habit of saying nuclear, which is like so ridiculous. I haven't said nuclear in decades, but it's still every time I say the word, I have to think about it, Nuc- nuclear. I really have to think about it each time. It's crazy.
1: Well, the Devo has that album, New Clear Days.
0: New Clear Days, Nuclear Days. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, particularly the fact that those, that the idea of ICBMs and submarine-launched missiles played such a large role in my childhood growing up, thinking about, the war the big yeah, war yeah. and then realizing you know i've been around nuclear weapons in the sense that i've been places where i know that they are
1: you mean like uh, are you talking about like icbms in, in in silos or on subs or what
0: icbms in silos where i've been on the other side of a fence from you know, a missile far out in a field that I knew was, I knew was there as part of like driving across the country and deciding that I wanted to go see some places where there were ICBMs buried in the ground. Right. Um, but never in a situation like this where I'm on a, what they call a boomer, a nuke sub whose purpose is not to fight little wars, but to, be out in the ocean with you know fully loaded with missiles that have one purpose which is to strike a retaliatory strike against an aggressor and they don't i mean these submarines their whole mission is stay out of sight they don't have another mission if you drove a boat over them and your boat was attacking some other boat and you were a bad guy and you were a pirate or or I mean, if, if a submarine was in a situation if – if one of these particular submarines was in a situation where there was a, a war, like a local war or some kind of thing where they could get involved, they wouldn't. Their only mission is and wait for those launch codes. And that's heavy business. But, you know, these missiles that are on this boat, they have multiple warheads. They have 12. They can have – Per missile, right? 12 nuclear bombs per missile. So, and, and on our way down to the sub base, we pass by the, the arsenal, the bunker, the armory, which is, which the Admiral was like, Oh, that goes way deep underground. You know, that's a deep, deep, deep cold war tunnel that they built more onto after nine 11 and, even, abo- even what's sticking up above the ground seems like a big operation, but right. thinking about how many, you know, we have new, we have stockpiles of these weapons, but where do they keep them? I mean, they keep them places, and this is one of those places. Uh, and I was on one sub of multiple subs right. that were in various hangars, and two subs were tied up next to each other. I went on... Uh, the USS Kentucky but the USS um, uh, Henry Jackson was tied up next to it which is fairly unusual but they were doing some work on them. The Henry Jackson is the one submarine that's not named after a state. It's Hmm. the only sub that's named after a person. The only one? Yep and it's named after the the only boomer The only Ohio class submarine. Uh, It's named after Henry Scoop Jackson, who was a very close friend of my dad's. My dad was Scoop Jackson's campaign manager uh, in his first run for office. And Scoop was a senator from Washington and and very close with my whole family. Like my mom just – apropos of nothing two days before I went out to the sub base was talking about Scoop's mother and how wonderful she'd been to my mom when they were, when, when my mom was young and a young, newly married to my dad. And my dad actually had, uh, Mrs. Jackson, the elder. Uh, he had her ashes in the credenza behind his desk for years because Scoop had asked him or she had wanted to have her ashes sprinkled on Mount Susitna in Alaska. And my dad said, of course I'll do it any, you know, I'll do it right away. And then he forgot about it. And his, uh, her ashes just sat behind his desk in an urn. (laughs) And every, you know, every week I would say, why don't we go, you know, because we had a plane, right? Like, why don't we take the plane, go, go do that. And he was like, Oh yeah, we got to do that. One of these days I, her ashes were there for 15 years anyway so it was very interesting <laughs> to be there looking at this submarine that was named after a family friend Un- a kind of an unusual experience I, I and i and I mentioned scoop Jackson a couple of times even to the admiral and just got blank looks they had no idea who he was he's just the guy that was na- you know yeah who's the name of that submarine but yeah pretty intense I mean most of the tour of the submarine was exactly what you would think it was they let me sit in the in the chair and spin the wheel. And, and there's the, there's the con there with the, um, with the periscopes and, and, um, the crew quarters and the, the galley. And now a man of of
1: your size and and skeletal girth, were you confined in these spaces? You're claustrophobic at all, or was it, was it surprisingly roomy?
0: This is a big boat. It's not – this isn't a fast attack submarine, which is a much smaller sized sub. And those are the subs that would get involved, right? A fast attack submarine is the one that's going to fire a torpedo at an aggressor boat or shoot some tomahawk missiles at a troop formation somewhere out in the desert. Like a fast attack submarine is a – is a um, you know, like the type of – a submarine that would trail after a a carrier strike group or something like that. Right. I think those boats are a lot smaller and would get a lot more claustrophobic. Although these big boats, the Ohio class ones, they're under the water. They go out to sea. They go under the water for a hundred days, 140 days.
1: And they don't need to dock or anything for that whole time, right? They're just completely autonomous.
0: The captain said, the only restriction, the only reason they ever come up to the service is they run out of food. It's because pretty
1: amazing. Because
0: they have a reactor, and so they have all the power they could use and more, and they have enough power to run a desalination plant right? where they take seawater and turn it into distilled water, and then they have another plant on the ship that takes water, distilled water and splits it into hydrogen and oxygen. So they make their own oxygen. I mean, they make their own breathing air and an unlimited quantity of it because they just have, pa- I mean, the unlimited power, which is astonishing. Yeah, it really yeah. is astonishing. And so, so it's just food. That's the only, um, the only reason they, they need to come up. Food and the fact that, I mean, I don't know how 300 people stay on that boat for 150 days under the ocean. I can't imagine what it would be like. I can't imagine what it would be like to be... How many times
1: can they recircle the, the air, though, and clean it?
0: They just make their own air.
1: Just create They're, it.
0: They create it out of... I mean, they create it using chemistry. Yeah. Um, and... I'm sure that they collect the carbon monoxide, they vent it, and they keep you know they bring distilled water in, they split it up, they get some hydrogen, they get some oxygen, and um, and they just burble right along. I mean, desalination and that process of splitting water into its components, those are very energy-intensive systems. Uh, but they have all, they, they have surplus energy. Um, so, yeah, I, I asked about the size issue. But most of the submariners that I saw were not small. I think they said, I mean, the captain of this boat was six foot. Uh, the admiral was taller. He's probably six foot two. And he'd been in the submarine corps his whole life. So it's not like it's, it's not like an old fashioned one where you have to be small. You can, and, and, and there were a lot of, a lot of people that were, that were big, full grown adults.
1: Yeah. Grown men.
0: Yeah. Uh, Grown men. There were no women on this boat. I, I, I quizzed them about that. Uh, The captain said, you know, we live in such tight quarters that in order to maximize the space. If I were to bring a woman on board, I would need to bring a full complement of women on board. And what that means is that, and they need to bunk more or less with their own rank because I'm not going to billet a lieutenant commander and a chief petty officer together. So. If, uh, if a female officer comes on the ship, it's easier because there are so much, so many fewer officers that they can just. Um, th- there's a there are workarounds, but to bring female enlisted people means that you have to have. I mean, there are nine bunks in an enlisted man uh, enlisted bunk room, nine nine per bunk, and he's like, you know. He, he, We are introducing women into submarines, but it's going to take a while, and it's complicated, and we're conscious of it, but hard to do. And I was like, well, I know, but got to figure it out, bros. (laughs) But on this boat, the Kentucky, there were no women currently. (laughs) right.
1: We would like to say thank you to Brooklinen. Brooklinen. This is betting. This is amazing betting. And you know what? What makes a the best holiday gift ever, I think bedding. When I was just talking to my family about this, uh, when I was a kid, my grandparents would give me gifts like a new set of sheets or a new sweater or something, stuff that I love now, stuff that I would, would love to receive as a gift now. But back then I just wanted toys. But now, you know what? We're grownups. We're all adults here. And this is the thing. Think about Brooklyn and maybe this is the perfect gift for uh, for a loved one. You spend a third of your life in your sheets. Think about it like that. You can get high quality sheets and bedding that you and your loved ones deserve without needlessly high luxury retail prices. That's the whole philosophy behind Brooklinen. They were started back in 2014 by a husband and wife team with the philosophy that people deserve simple, beautiful home essentials without having to pay luxury prices and they came up with Brooklyn and it's the fastest growing bedding brand in the world because people love this stuff. They have over 12,000 five-star reviews. They were uh, named the winner of the best online bedding category by Good Housekeeping. They have got tons of colors, tons of patterns you can mix and match. So you actually have like some style on your bedding for the first time ever. It's luxury bedding, it's underpriced, and they're great. And uh, I love the Brooklinen sheets that I have. I think you should try them and I think that you'll love them too. They've got an exclusive offer just for our listeners, $20 off and free shipping when you use the code uh, ROADWORK, one word, at Brooklinen. In fact, they're so confident that you're going to love them that they give you a risk free 60 night satisfaction guarantee. That means you get the sheets, you wash them, you put them on, you put the comforter on, you do all this stuff. And you get basically two months, 60 days, 60 nights to enjoy and see if you like it. And if you don't, no harm, no foul. They don't care. They just want you to be happy. And you're going to be happy. You're going to love this stuff. But the only way to get the 20 bucks off and the free shipping is to use the promo code ROADWORK at Brooklinen. Let me spell that for you. Brook, Linen B-R-O-O-K, L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com, promo code ROADWORK. Thanks very much, Brooklinen.
0: And uh, submariners are heavy duty nerds, even like with D and D kind of nerds or yeah. Yeah. Even within the, the Navy, they're considered the nerds and the, the captain of the boat confided at a certain point, cause he's a Naval Academy graduate and he said, you know, I'm used to using sports metaphors to motivate people. Like let's move the ball down the field. You know, it's, it's, uh, fourth down and time to punt or whatever sp- <laughs> sports people say. Sure. And he said, I was just granted or uh, I was just uh, greeted with blank stares uh, because these kids have no idea what's, uh, what that means. Fourth down. They, they don't even, they have no exposure to it. Well, and better for them because
1: they, they probably can't watch. Can they watch TV under there? Like, could they I get think, live, like live TV, like watching a sporting event?
0: I did not ask that question, <sighs> but he said, what it turns out is they're all gamers. Right. And they're used to using gamer language to describe their issues. And I was like, what kind of metaphors do gamers use to describe real life situations? And he said, I have no idea. And I said, I have no idea. And we all kind of looked at each other like a bunch of middle-aged people. And I said, I, there's got to be a whole lexicon where – if two gamers meet out in the, on the sidewalk and one of them is saying what a hard day he had at work, the other one can use game metaphors, but none of us had any idea how to, uh, and so he said, you know, it's, it's a challenge because that's what they want to do in their off hours. They don't want to, they don't, um, distract themselves the way we used to in our downtime. They're kind of fine. Actually, they put their headphones on and they, lay in their bunk and they go they go deep into their world. But he said we can't have too much interconnectivity because as soon as you use wireless, even if you're in a submarine under the ocean, you open yourself up to the like potential. dropping and yeah, yeah. End of somebody getting in yeah. somehow. Oh yeah. It's a pretty awesome pretty awesome experience.
1: Well I have two questions for you. One of them is how much free time what a sailor have on a ship like that under the water. I mean, are they working eight hours a day or is it, are they, are the the people doing the work kind of there as a just in case, like when I used to do it work, I would say 20 to 30% of my time, I just needed to be there for when things went wrong. Things were always going wrong. So I was busy, but it, it, there was that block of time where, well, we just need coverage to make sure that in case something happens, there's someone here versus, you know, being busy the whole time? Like, is every, all 300 people under there, are they busy all day, you know, for their regular jobs? or Are some of them there like, well, in case we need to do a launch or there's this person here who just sort of like monitors the thing that makes the air, you know what I'm saying? Like, are they all well, busy? Did, are they all do, doing jobs like all day long? Or is there a downtime?
0: downtime? I did ask this question. Uh, there are two sort of very different answers. One of them is there are, they keep at all times two complete crews of a submarine like this. There's the blue team and the gold team. Mm. And so when the submarine comes in after 150 days at sea, uh, and the gold team all gets off the boat, the blue team immediately gets on and the blue team has its own captain, its own master chief, Every job is duplicated. Right. Entirely. It's a completely different crew. And the blue team thinks of it as their submarine and the gold team thinks of it as their submarine. And never the twain shall meet. But within the sub itself and the Admiral – so Admiral John Tammon, my friend, uh, got his second star recently and is leaving his command at the – as commander of submarine group nine – and is going back to the Pentagon. His new job is uh, commander of the entire undersea warfare directorate wow. at the Pentagon. And so he has thought about this question a lot. And he said, for years, we were we did a six hour on, six hour off uh, cycle. So you're on for six hours, you get six hours downtime, then you're back on for six hours, then six hours downtime. And this was just the system they used in the Navy. And he said, it screwed people up badly because you can never get on a cycle. You know, you're sleeping and then you're awake and you're sleeping and the days kind of cycle around. And when you're on a submarine, there isn't any distinction between day and night. You know, it's not like you ever see the sun. Right. But six hours on, six hours off was a bad system. And if you missed an opportunity to sleep, you know, then you were up for 18 hours and somehow, you know, engaged in the work. Basically, you were working for 18 hours. And so he said they just recently switched to eight hours on, 16 hours off. And they're trying it out and see how it goes. Um, and it's much better for their morale and better for their health. So I think the rest of the time you're just, you're down there killing time. You're trying to get eight hours of sleep. Right. And you're trying to get down to the gym and work out and you're trying to eat three meals a day. So it's, um, and this is part of the captain's job and the executive officer's job is to monitor the health and well-being of the crew. And uh, but I, I imagine, like most of those jobs, it's just about routine. You do the same thing every day, and the captain is always running drills. So every day there's some there's some drill, there's some emergency that needs to be attended to. You run and rerun and rerun every possible permutation of what your job would look like in various you know circumstances
1: you know whenever they show like on tv they show them like okay we're gonna have a drill and like they're pushing all the buttons and doing everything in there how do they know like the one guy over on the left over there like he, he he like he had his key in the wrong position or something he's actually like gonna launch the stuff like how do they well, keep but, that thing from happening? You know what I'm saying? Like, there's the five guys in there, and like, okay, hit this key, come, they like enter it in. Okay, codes are verified, and they do the thing. They snap the little thing open. Okay, our codes are authentic, and they do they're doing the whole thing. But it's supposed to be like a rehearsal. But accidentally, like Dave screws up, and like doesn't have his key, in the you know what I'm saying? Like, how do they keep that from happening? They have to have something in place to do that.
0: Well, what's did you in talk to him about that, that? Of course. What's in place is that they have. They're not able. No, no one or two people even are um, would be able to launch a missile accidentally or on their own. That ah, just
1: makes me accord. so so nervous thinking about. They do those drills and accidentally, like it turns out, is it's felt like a drill. But they all did something wrong and wrong code something.
0: I mean, I think even if a couple of people in the launch uh, center were like, you know what let's just fuck the world. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they would be able to, you know, they would have to, they're just too many fail safes.
1: Right. Well, my uh, other question was about the, the radiation. Um, obviously they've got a reactor down there that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just like being near the, warheads and stuff is that something they have to worry about did you have a little card on your badge where like if it turns black you've got an hour to live or anything like that did you is that a thing they they worry about with you you were sitting right there with all those warheads
0: i don't think so uh that isn't a question i asked what i wanted to do was go back and see the reactor yeah they wouldn't let you do that would they no, they don't let you go back. He said that everybody on the boat, no matter who it is, the cook, you know, the um, the smallest, the the littlest midshipman, right. um, was ha- had top secret clearance because there can't be any part of the boat that has separate security from uh, any right, other.
1: Right. That makes sense. You couldn't guarantee to keep someone just – you can't go past this one door.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would just be too – That'd be too crazy. And so everybody's got secret clearance. But for visitors on the boat, there's just too much weird proprietary stuff around the reactor for them to let you just motor around. And yeah. that was true. I toured the USS Abraham Lincoln one time, which was a an aircraft carrier. And they didn't let you go down into the reactor there either. It's, um, you know, it's got to be a... God, can you imagine having even leaving the missiles aside, having the power behind you of your own,
1: right, your own portable nuclear reactor?
0: I mean, it's just <laughs> such an inc- incredible amount of energy at your command. Yeah. Hard to hard to fathom, but because the military no, is all No, no pun
1: intended, right? Right. Uh, um, I couldn't resist. Exactly. Exactly. Very good. Uh,
0: But, you know, the military is all about habit and pattern. And so I don't think probably the captain, I mean, he certainly is, um, he went to the Naval Academy. He's not, he's not dumb to the power, but he, he can't possibly sit there and think about it all day. He's just got, he's got work to do, you know, and and so they just do their work. They just do their jobs.
1: Our next sponsor is Away. I love my Away bag. This is the, this is the thing that they do. They do it right. They make the best carry-on in the world. The company was founded by two friends from New York. They found themselves at JFK. They had, uh, they had dead phones. They had delayed flights. And they came up with the idea. What if instead of trying to like frantically go through the airport, trying to fight over the one outlet that maybe is in that one terminal, what if you have it with you right there in your luggage? This is the whole philosophy behind the way carry on. They wanted to create the perfect luggage, special objects that are resilient, resourceful and essential to the way that you travel. They talk to thousands of people about how you pack, why you travel, what bugs you most about your luggage. And they came up with a bag that solved a few old problems like sticky wheels and a few new ones like dead cell phones. Uh, and, and they came up with these great bags. They make for the perfect gift too. They have a lifetime guarantee. They have a hundred day trial. They actually want you to go and travel with this thing. Now, sometimes you buy something you're like, well, it has to look brand new in case they don't like, no, go and use this thing. They want you to be happy. And there's a perfect size and color for everyone on your list. Uh, for a holiday season gift or you can go and get an away gift card if you're like well you know henry doesn't like anything i pick out for him but i want him to get one of these i am gonna let him pick it himself get a gift card the best quality materials they cut out the middleman and they sell direct to you no retail markup they've got 10 colors five sizes the carry-on the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, if you're staying somewhere a long time. They even have a kid's carry-on that my kids love. German polycarbonate, lightweight. They've got the uh, the spinner wheels so that when you're walking through the airport, you just it's just upright. I'm telling you, it is so, I've seen people doing that before I had one of these. They're just walking around with it upright. You can do that too. You can be cool. You can be cool. I have the carry-on. That's the one I have. Uh, but both sizes of the carry-on can charge cell phones, tablets, whatever else you got, anything that's powered by a USB cord. And a single charge of the Away carry-on will charge your iPhone up to five times. Pretty cool. A hundred-day trial to make sure you love it. Go to awaytravel.com, awaytravel.com slash roadwork, and use the promo code roadwork during checkout to get $20 off your suitcase. Thanks very much away. How long did you get to spend on the, uh, on the sub?
0: Well, all, all of the middle of the day, we, we sat down, we went into the officer's mess and I sat with all of the ships brass and we had lunch together. Of Was it uh,
1: food that was prepared on the sub?
0: Yep. Prepared and also served to us on China by orderlies. Um, uh, there was meatball sandwiches, uh, filet, filets of fish, salad, vegetable courses. Uh, it was a, it was a nice, a full, a full meal. And, um, and so I got to kind of quiz everybody on, uh, all the officers about what they did and, and, uh, what it was like on the ship. And, you know, I'm always, of course, trying to incite trouble. So I'm like, well, what do you think about the captain? Is he a good captain? And, you know, they can't they – all, they all get real shy. Oh, yeah. Um, look at their shoes. The captain's like, yeah, go ahead and answer. And it's like, well, nobody's going to answer. No way. And then I'm like, well, everybody likes this admiral. Is he pretty good admiral? And nobody – I mean, even the captain looks at his shoes at that point. Uh, but that's fun. That's fun to do, you know, just sort of get them get, – uh, there's nothing I like better than getting a room full of Navy officers a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah uh, and then because, leave <laughs> yeah because you know it's like it's awkward it's 300 guys on in a sealed tube right um they're also managing a lot of emotion i'm sure and um a lot of strong feelings so why not bring that shit up
1: you mentioned that you at one point have been to other areas where there were subs or nuclear silos and things. Have you ever been to Trinity?
0: No, I haven't.
1: That's high on my list of things I want to do someday.
0: I've been to Los Alamos. Uh, but
1: like the testing it, part or which part no, of the it? labs? Cool. um,
0: But I've never been to any place where they've actually exploded a device and the sand has turned to glass and
1: green glass. Yeah, they only apparently they only open the Trinity site. I think it's twice a year now. They were doing it. They were doing it once a year. Then they stopped doing it. Then they brought it back and are doing. I think they're doing it twice a year. Mm -hmm. But I think that'd be fascinating. But of course, you can only be there for a period of time before you start clicking, right. And then you got to go. But you're not allowed to take anything or touch anything, you know.
0: Yeah, of course. They don't want you taking some glass home and having it on your your shelf.
1: Right. But what I wonder is, you know, we did a lot of above-ground testing as well as below-ground testing, of course. And there's lots and lots of craters that are way, way, way bigger than the first Trinity test. I'm guessing those things are even more dangerous to be around but they don't do tours of any of those i guess because they're not you know monumental in the same way
0: well a lot of that happened on the nevada proving ground right and um and so the whole the whole of that area is off limits uh they just they just don't let you anywhere near it and right. i think the i think what was what what most of those above what you're calling above ground tests, most of them were atmospheric tests. Right, they, they blew up the bomb somewhere pretty high up in the air, and um, and yeah, I imagine they
1: they still made they still made craters, but I suppose it's uh, big it craters dispersed more because it's not a ground impact.
0: Well, I think I think. I think it fucked up the ground pretty hard. Yeah. Uh, And that, I I mean, I'd love to go out to, I think there are pictures of uh, the Nevada proving grounds from the air. And it's like, they set off a lot of bombs. There are, there are, um, I mean, it looks like, like a pocked mark.
1: Yeah. It looks like the surface of the moon almost. Yeah.
0: In fact, the, in fact, they, the astronauts trained out there. Because it was so close to the what the moon looked like.
1: I would like to say thank you very much to Washington Square Watches. These watches are very cool. They're inspired by professionals working in Washington Square, New York City, and beyond. And this is the, this is the thing. There's a lot of watches out there, and a lot of people have write to me, and they're like, "I want I want to watch, but I want something different. I want to get into this whole watch thing. What do I do? Well these were launched by a team of folks really experienced in luxury timepieces. It's inspired by the energy of New York city. And, and that's what they're imbuing in these things. The, the Washington square watches, they're redefining the look of success. They're redefining the look of fun and they let your individuality, your creativity and your motivation to pursue your dreams shine. You know, we as guys, especially, I mean, they make, watches for men and women but i'm just saying as guys we don't have a lot to like spice up our uh our dress code you know what i mean it's too easy to fall into a rut these things they let you be creative they let you bring out that little bit of fun that that uh but still have that dressy look if you want it. still be professional they're urban but they're affordable they're refined you even have the option to personalize your watch strap with your initials free but just during the holiday season, they've come with genuine leather straps made in America, slim design with upgraded minimalist details. They've even some of them have this really cool uh, square shaped case. I've got one right here that's it's a, a very very cool matte a black square case. You don't see that a lot. Another way to stand out, and they ship in a box, a gift box that has a vegan leather pouch around it. And uh, if you're like a watch nerd like I am, they've got uh, very high quality Japanese movements in them, so they're super accurate. I've got two right here, and uh, I really enjoy these things. They are very, very unique, very, very nice. Especially if you've been in New York, you're going to get the vibe, and that's their cool logo, the Washington Square logo. You got to check this out. For more info and check out all of the watches, so many variations. It's at Washington Square Watches. Dot com. Again, Washington Square Watches, and use the code ROADWORK for 30% off your whole order. ROADWORK. So thanks again to WashingtonSquareWatches.com. But what I'm, what I'm saying is if you can't be on the Trinity site for more than a little while, and if you look at this, these pictures of all the, the craters, and there's roads going all around them. There's people. So like, clearly they must not be that radioactive anymore. I don't think they are. Yeah. But then we need, we ha- I'm sure we have a scientist in the audience who can email us with an explanation of what's going on.
0: I'm sure that there are, uh, nuclear scientists listening. There have to, have to be, there have to be. Well, I know there I know for a fact there are because they have come up to me and said so at, at various events. Um, I had an interesting experience uh, not very long ago where I mean and I'm talking about within the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. where uh a uh man contacted me and said how would you feel about appearing at the um How would you feel about going to the Army War College and sort of being um, being a participant in a forum where civilian uh, – eminent civilians come and discuss national security questions with – people at the war college and I said well I'm very interested of course and so now an application has been filed on my behalf Mm, very cool and they have to decide of course whether they're going to you know they have to pick their roster of people to to um attend uh and I'm super excited about the prospect because, you know, it's not just that I think about the war makers and how they fit into the, to the policy makers. But I also think a lot about civilian oversight of the military and how, how challenging that is to maintain because the military has a lot of its own enforcement power. And has a has a great desire to remain autonomous of civilian authority, except at, at the highest levels. Right? No nobody wants some guy in a cheap suit coming around and talking about what the what the army can and cannot do on right, the ground. Sure. But the problem with that is that we don't have enough civilian oversight up at up at the higher levels. We, we're not we leave it to the generals an awful lot of the time. And the generals come from a a school of thought where the ideas, I mean, if, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Right. Uh, all, all the generals, I mean, what the generals know how to do and what they're really good at is fighting war. And so although they are tasked with looking for a diplomatic solution and although they are trained In some aspects of that, uh, that's not their first or second instinct even. And a lot of the time they've been taught that the way to bring the other party to the negotiating table is to beat the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't in our current setup, well, uh, there isn't enough civilian oversight. There aren't enough people in a position who uh, a position where they have studied diplomacy who have who have actionable input into what the army is doing in these theaters of war so i i spend a lot of time churning on that stuff and the uh, the uh, opportunity to go to the war college and interact with young officers and and officers in the middle of their career and officers there who are teaching this stuff it would be like i mean what an opportunity and what a how thrilling would it be and also thrilling to to listen and to and to interact with the other civilians that get invited to this thing but the the way that this invite came uh, came about is that one of our listeners is um is an air force colonel of a full colonel who teaches at the war college. Oh, nice. And so he said, yeah, you talk about this stuff a lot. I think you'd be good at this. And, you know, luckily or, or I guess like flatteringly he said, you know, I, I teach here. So I think my recommendation will carry a little bit of extra weight. So I'm kind of, uh, I kind of have a little bit of bated breath about it because.
1: When are you going to find out?
0: Well, I need to then complete my application uh. by January, which involves, you know, according to him, like you need to now write some stuff down about what a big wheel you are because they love that stuff. You know, they want to hear that you have, <laughs> it's hilarious to me, but, you know, they want to hear that you have 30,000 Twitter followers because they want to get you know they want to be convinced that they're getting people from the civilian world that are influential that have uh you know where it's worth their effort to bring them to this table um and they're not just somebody that's good at world of warcraft but they've (laughs) actually you know they've demonstrated that they are part of the Part of the conversation, the larger conversation. Right. So, I, you know, I don't like to go write my Wikipedia entry, basically. I don't even feel like I have a good Wikipedia entry, let alone that I sit in and um, kind of present it as evidence of my usefulness. You know, a few years ago, uh, uh, a listener arranged it so I was invited to the conference on world affairs and I went and I was pretty suspicious of it and when I got there it was sort of different than I expected and and the conference on world affairs has been going for a long long time and it has a culture of its own it has an internal culture and there are people that get invited back every year and have gone there are people who have gone for 30 years Um, Roger Ebert is a famous example of somebody who was invited to the conference on world affairs for years and years. It was a big part of his, I mean, he really identified with it and, and was one of the stars of it. And the idea of the conference on world affairs is, is very similar. Like bring a bunch of people from all walks of life, Hollywood film directors, uh, High ranking brass in the military, industrialists, lawyers, CEOs, and members of the culture, and bring them all together to sit on panels and discuss big ideas. And I was like, this is for me. But it turned out that there was a pre existing track mm. within the culture of the Conference on World Affairs. Uh, That included musicians and that track because this is a a older organization and typically the people that attend it are ones that are in the – they are senior in their careers. The musician track was 98% jazz (laughs) and the 2% that (laughs) – wasn't jazz were i mean and 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 the jazz includes like african drummers and um world music people but all of those performers are performing within the context of of jazz or they're capable of polyrhythmic participation in jazz and there's two percent of the people that aren't jazz but they are so elevated within their own field that they are again, like capable of sitting in with jazz, but everything is happening within that context, jazz and improvisational jazz. And the, the listener who had me invited to this event, um, understandably used my musical, uh, like profile, as a way to to, um, encourage them to invite me to it. Once I got there, I was like, well, look, I'm not jazz at all, and it doesn't seem like you want me to do a show of my own music. The collaborative nature and the throw-everyone-together nature of this program to you means that I and these other musicians collaborate on something. And I just don't know. I did not have a a way really to sit in on jazz. Yeah. Um, And what I wanted to do was talk to CEOs and generals and, and uh, agents and professors about the big ideas, but the internal culture of the festival would, and they did put me on these panels and I did enjoy them very much, but what they wanted was for me to be a musician in those contexts and to, um, and there just wasn't, there wasn't as much an intellectual framework. And I think this is culturally true widespread. You don't expect your musicians to be political, political, or if you do you expect them to be a certain kind of political you know like bono right um, you don't you don't expect them to be I guess thoughtful and informed and I think that's probably true of your novelists mm. and your painters mm-hmm. like there are certain public intellectuals that we expect to address broad topics but they usually aren't ones who have had careers in specific things or that's the rarer path anyway so i got into this conference on world affairs and i was having a really good time uh pursuing this world of ideas aspect of it but then er, you know they kept redirecting me back to these events where where some you know where the band leader would say hey man it's really easy we're just gonna do blues and sea um you know, take a solo when you feel comfortable. It'll be real hot. And I was like, blues and C, I I can do that. And then what he meant by blues and C was. And, you know, and then it's like <laughs> hand off to the other guy. And he's like. And then hand off to the drummer who's like, and then they look at me and I go, (laughs) and it was like, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) not even (laughs) close. And so what I ended up doing was I got up on stage and I turned the volume on my guitar all the way down and I just sat and made my right hand, look like it was playing super cool because I can, you know, I can like, right. Sh- sure. Sh- and so, and then I was like faking that I was playing super interesting chords, but I was making zero noise. And because there's 20 people on stage, it's yeah, not, no one, no
1: one, cared. Who cares?
0: The band guys knew because they, you know, every once in a while, like the spotlight would go on me And everybody's like, all right. And I would go, ha, ha, ha. But no sound was coming out of my amp. And the audience couldn't tell. Because everybody, it's one of those everybody's soloing all the time situations. But when it came time to be invited again the following year, I was not invited. And it hurt my feelings a little bit. But um, because I wanted to be I wanted to be thought of and accepted as one of the thinkers, mm-hmm. um, and there were people from all walks of life that were that were allowed to be the thinkers, right? Hollywood lawyers and um, but but being the CEO of a washing washer and dryer company, um, the idea that that person would have more interesting things to contribute to, to wide ranging conversations than a musician is just the mistake that we often make, right? That a CEO has some thoughtfulness. And in in many cases, that's not true at all. You know, in in many cases, being a CEO is a logistical job. Being a general certainly is a logistical job and it isn't, It maybe even is it's contraindicated that you be especially uh, reflective. And who do we look for culturally that is that's that's willing to spend a lot of time chewing on ideas and come out the other side with no conclusions or with tentative conclusions? It used to be a job in in the culture, you know, the, the the thoughtful writer or the, um, the cultural critic. And I think that's now been democratized and everyone on Twitter is performing that role Mm. in some small way, Mm -hmm. but because of the democratization it's really hard to know who has, who has really spent time with these ideas and who is just repackaging some other tweet that they read and, and agreed with or who is completely off base or bonkers. I mean, it's all just coming at you in the form of tweets and, and now like all tweets are so polemical That it feels like a political conversation, but it really isn't one because nobody's taking very much time with the thoughts and it isn't very popular to weigh into those conversations and say, well, it's this is a really hard idea and it requires that we not just have nuance around it, but that we acknowledge that there isn't a clear course of action. Um, You just get shouted down now by yeah. people who are oh, yeah. convinced that in- there's instantly. an immediate, yeah, there's a course of action. And if you don't acknowledge that and if you aren't prepared to undertake it, then you're an enemy of the cause, whatever it is. Uh, so, I mean, I don't like the idea that that, that the the long form conversation is being siloed in these like think tanky places conference on world affairs and the army war college. That's not where it belongs. It belongs on late night TV. It belongs on, uh, it belongs somewhere on the internet where, where the presumption is everybody knows the basic facts. Nobody needs to be lectured to about what the, you know, what the basic facts are. Nobody needs a crash course from, from a twenty-six-year-old on what Nazism is, uh, and and then it's a place where where most people are viewers, most people are listeners, and and it's a it is a world of ideas, and you can go over on your own Twitter feed and comment on it, but that it isn't. So uh, and the and the problem is there's no such thing as mainstream culture anymore, a particularly mainstream intellectual culture, right? Intellectualism is um is democratized and dumber as a result. And there isn't a place. There's not, and part of it was the idea that that um consolidated or having having this condensed um idea of what the culture was, was, was anti democratic and was and, and retained power in the hands of a, of a privi- privileged minority and that democratizing it was uh, was a, you know an unassailable good because to keep it in the hands of this minority was to um, was to recapitulate power structures was to maintain white supremacy was you know to retain a kind of class, supremacy and that's an intellectual idea the idea that 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 process should be democratized but also the effect was that that used to be a kind of professional position to be a public thinker and people devoted their lives to it and in this world and you know and i'm contradicting myself in the sense that i like to be part of that conversation and and I came at it as a musician. Now I've been trying to to transition for a long time into the role of a public intellectual. Right.
1: But you said the, unsuccessfully or successfully?
0: Well, I mean it's a long it's a long road to the point where you are trusted by a large number of people to be to be publicly thoughtful and not driven by an agenda and not just a dummy who's got some stuff to say about everything. Uh, and especially now when um, when there is a thought technology that would put me just by virtue of, of some characteristics in a category of people from whom we didn't need to hear. And so, yeah, it's a challenge in that that's really what I've ever wanted to do. I I had lunch with Paul F. Tompkins one time and I said, you know, I've always felt like I should be a comedian. I have I'm funny and (laughs) people have told me I should be a comedian and I just never. And he stopped me and said, all I ever wanted to be was a comedian from the time I was eight years old. All I ever done is practice comedy. And when I was 18, I was doing stand up. And when I was 22, I was doing stand up. And when, when I was 30, I was doing stand up. So it's not a thing within comedy circles where we enthusiastically welcome a bunch of 45 year olds who are like, you know, comedy seems (laughs) easy,
1: right. I'm kind of funny.
0: Yeah. And I was like, well said or touche my friend. Uh, But when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a public intellectual. And when I was 12 and when I was 18 and when I was 24 and I didn't know the route to that. And I didn't believe the route was just exclusively to study political science I thought the route was to go out and become self-educated and and well versed and uh, and with a lot of life experience that you could draw on. But you know how how do you enter that role, particularly not having written a book or several books, which is which is the primary way that one becomes. Uh, one establishes themselves in that station is that they've written a book, they've written another book. That's the way we express intellectualism. Uh, and I haven't written a book. In fact, it's very hard to be a lazy public intellectual, but you know, I think lazy people need to be represented in the
1: <laughs> conversation. Of course. Well, they do. <laughs> Underrepresentation and, is the biggest problem of, of lazy people everywhere.
0: <laughs> and I think, I think part of that is um, – well, it's the graduate student problem, right? That to be a successful graduate student requires a set of skills. Those skills are not necessarily the skills that make one a good professor and certainly are not the skills that make one a good instructor in the sense of engaging students passionately in a world of ideas to be a great graduate student is to be a good researcher and a diligent worker and a diligent thinker about ideas within that context of like, I'm doing this work to be a good instructor is to be a good storyteller is to be able to draw from a broad, broad set of ideas so that you can contextualize ideas for people And say, here's why we want to know this. Like, here's why we care about the work of Jane Bowles. Just reading her books isn't sufficient to understand why we are studying her. Uh, And that is a different set of skills. But, But the way we set up professorships, the way we set up universities, there's this pipeline from graduate students to professors. And it's much more difficult to bring lay people or people with, with, a, with a breadth of ideas into that job. And so you get a lot of, you know, and so the experience of college uh, it becomes self-reinforcing. You get teachers that, that don't even like to teach, you know, that, that teaching is a requirement of their, of what they really want to do, which is research. I mean, you talk to graduate students all the time. They're like, well, I got to teach these classes, but it's just part of like, it's part of how I, I keep my grant alive. Well, I mean, that's not who you want to take a class from. No slag. I just, I'm here to keep my grant alive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. What I really want to be doing is sitting in this lab, uh, injecting uh, borax into rats <laughs> right. but i but i have to go teach intro to, to chemistry and all, right. Not
1: what I, all right we would like to thank squarespace you can do so much with squarespace you might have even heard of them before you could turn your cool idea into a new website you can showcase your work you can blog or publish content you can sell products and services of all kinds you can promote your physical or your online business some people use it to announce an upcoming event, like a, a wedding. You use it for your, your special project you're working on. You name it. You can do it. And it's going to look beautiful because these templates are created by world-class designers. They've got e-commerce functionality. lets you sell anything online. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products, everything with just a couple of clicks. You don't need any HTML or CSS to do it. And it's optimized for mobile right out of the box. It's going to look beautiful on your web browser, on your computer. It's going to look maybe, I don't know, maybe even better on your phone. Is that possible? I think so. And you can buy domains now, 200 extensions. You just go there and buy a domain name. You can do it with your website or you can just buy a domain. It's up to you. Nothing to patch or upgrade ever. It's secure, 24-7 award-winning customer support. Go and make it yourself. Make it stand out with a beautiful website. Head over to squarespace.com for a free trial. and When you're ready to launch, use the offer code ROADWORK to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. And I know you're saying to yourself, I've heard about Squarespace. And guess what, Dan? I already have a Squarespace website. That's cool. But I bet you know somebody who's right now thinking about launching something, thinking about doing something. And you could say to them, you know what? Try out Squarespace. Here's a discount code. 10% off. Code is ROADWORK. See? Now you're their best friend. Become someone's best friend with Squarespace.
0: And the same is true about, about, the, about so many roles, right? The, the public intellectual is we, we pull from the ranks of writers, like people who are writing books about, about these topics where they're not really sitting and ruminating. They are trying to come out with a book that's got a hot take. So that book gets some attention and nobody wants no, no New York times uh, bestseller list is full of books where people are like, you know, this, but also that, and maybe not. And what if like, that's just not, that's not how you, you rocket up the charts. Um, and I suppose, I suppose to advance the public conversation there always need to be people that have strong viewpoints. But that isn't that doesn't it doesn't benefit us, it doesn't benefit the world of ideas to not have somebody who is maybe a little lazy. uh who's thought about it all and has recognized that it's very difficult to come to conclusions it's very difficult to have hot takes on things because Mm -hmm. there's always more information and there's always contradictory information. And that is actually the world. And that is, there's always an exception. There's always, there are exceptions that prove the rule and there are just straight up exceptions. Um, but that's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's exhausting and people don't want it. They want to watch a 30-minute program and come away from it either being for or against something. And now within the in the internet conversation you want to read 200 characters. Right. and come away something being profound for or against yeah. something. Yeah. Um which is, again, I mean, we come back to this over and over. It's what is so wonderful about podcasting. And there are a lot of, I mean, the successful podcasts, the big ones are, I guess, talking about sports or pretending to be in a in a weird village where weird things happen. Right. Or, um, you know, or running down a list of, of quirky topics. But then you get podcasts like My Brother, My Brother and Me where – it's meant to be funny, but also those guys are thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Um, there are the, the, the venue is an opportunity to sit and lay stuff out long form. And if people don't like it, they don't have to listen, but it is, it is a, it's, it is an example of a place where the, these conversations aren't being sequestered at the army war college or the conference on world affairs right they are accessible to people and i think they appeal to people who are also sitting places going huh i wa- i want to i want to think more about that i want to hear more about that and i'm sure there i mean i know for a fact there are people that listen to this program and just
1: shout at it do you think so yeah absolutely i think everybody's just nodding or kick back in their chair oh, like no, oh no, yeah no, no. oh yeah no no, uh-huh. no
0: there are lots of people who are like bullshit um, no uh-huh Sure there are, but they are saying bullshit within the context of generally understanding that we are people of goodwill who are not trying to shove anything down anybody's throat. You know, I think they, even the ones who are largely opposed to my worldview or yours or ours together, they recognize that hearing, hearing someone describe their worldview in detail is um, ultimately, a positive thing, and and a thing that they desire more of. Even if they're just like, "Oh my God, you have no idea, you liberal cuck," uh, and I don't think anybody thinks I'm a cuck. I'll come at you.